Hi, welcome to Neuroverse, a podcast hosted by Carolina and Clara, where we discuss all matters from neuroscience to philosophy and beyond. In today's episode, we have a special guest, Lisa Rosenberg, and she will be introducing today's topic. She's doing a degree in physics in Princeton University. Hello. So today I'm going to be talking about uh, understanding the world using physics, which is a very, very broad topic. And there are a lot of different areas of physics that can be used for understanding the world. But I think uh, I'm probably going to talk about more kind of edge cases where our limits of understanding are actually tested. Like, for example, in quantum mechanics and uh, understanding the universe is like a concept, etc. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Sounds fascinating. Yeah. And slightly different to what we usually discuss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Neither of us are experts in quantum mechanics or not at all. (laughs) Quantum gravity. So please enlighten us. Well, actually, I think um, although nowadays science as we study it is very divided between like physics, neuroscience, there are in fact, I think, uh, very intricately connected because whenever we study the world, we study it through our senses and we study it um, subjectively, nevertheless. For example, there is some famous quote, I think, by Heisenberg, who's like one of the inventors of quantum mechanics. Um, and he said something like, uh, what we observe is not nature itself, but nature exposed to our method of questioning, which sort of makes it very clear that whenever we probe the world for certain properties that we're looking for, we are imposing on it certain expectations. And I don't think we can ever get a full objective picture by studying it using our own minds. Uh, yeah. yeah. And not to even not to even mention the fact that uh, some scientists think that consciousness and just the functioning of the brain in general definitely has to have uh, quantum mechanics in order to actually work. Um, I don't think it's been proven. Uh, there are some kind of mm, more niche theories about this, I think, uh, for example, by Penrose. Uh, but it's generally accepted that probably there are things in neuroscience that um, need some very sophisticated uh, physics to understand how the brain works and how we actually understand and interact with the world. Um, like I remember in philosophy class, <laughs> um, we were discussing how uh, color is not actually there. Like it's yeah. just something we perceive because of the way that uh, photons interact with objects and how they interact with uh, the surfaces of the objects. And like whether it's uh, jagged or smooth, it makes it either like silver or dark maybe. Um yeah, I just, I think it's very fascinating that uh, we see a world only in one uh, sort of uh, manifestation, but it's mm-hmm. actually some underlying, it's something deeper and something we don't necessarily have direct access to. Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting that that's the first thing you start started the discussion off with as a physicist, because physics and mathematics are the more objective of Mm -hmm. the sciences compared to like biology or even chemistry, in my opinion. And like you mentioned, as humans, we are limited through our own faculty and that like 
everything will be inherently subjective either due to our previous memories and context as well as like we discussed in our previous episode noise in the brain and how it uh causes us to basically input the same information in slightly different ways yeah. and with physics and maths it's it seems to be a lot more quantifiable and like that's the equation like there's no ambiguity yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's interesting because i think there seem to be two sort of broad camps in physics like one is kind of the shut up and calculate approach where you just mm. kind of take the theory use its predictions and just like compute stuff and get results and the results match what you detect in experimental data um, and you're happy but the other approach is to actually think about what it is um, that these calculations are telling you like even in quantum mechanics it's notoriously extremely extremely good at uh, matching our experimental data but at the same time I don't think anybody agrees on what exactly quantum mechanics means because essentially the some of the postulates of quantum mechanics are such that when you compute every outcome has a wave function um, which kind of codes um, how likely it is that you're going to measure a certain value and there are there's a range of values that could possibly be measured that are accessible in some measurement um, and this wave function tells you which are possible but it doesn't necessarily tell you which one is going to be detected for sure it can but uh, i mean that's only after you make the measurement but once you make the measurement you get some value so then you kind of know what the state of that system is at that point but how exactly it got from being like in an uncertain state to being in a certain state, we don't know. Like, we don't know what exactly occurs. Somehow it just kind of collapses. We call it the wave function collapse. How it goes from being just probability, so like a certainty. We hope that there might be some physical principle that tells us how it undergoes that jump, but nobody knows what that principle is. And <laughs> it's, uh, some people are just happy with accepting it as it is and because it works very well, sure. But if we actually want to make progress in more deeply understanding science and the world um we need to pause and <laughs> uh think about what it means and i mean there are like so so many different uh hypotheses about um or like interpretations they're called interpretations of quantum mechanics like what these things mean like for example one hypothesis is that oh this wave function upon measuring the system the world kind of splits into multiple branches it's like the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics so um they all exist at the same time and it's just you happen to be in one of the branches and the others also exist but like they're just inaccessible by you like that, we have no proof this is really ignorant of me is that like schrodinger's cat like schrodinger's cat is there but also not there simultaneously yeah so uh, schrodinger's cat is i suppose uh, maybe the most famous um thought experiment to see what the problem actually is quickly recap what the setup is so um you have a cat and the cat is stuck in some box and <laughs> with the cat there's also some radioactive substance that is poisonous and we assume that like just one emitted radioactive particle from the substance is enough to kill the cat and we have this closed box we don't see what happens and 
this radioactive substance might decay at some point and might not. So radioactive decay is random. So it can occur like at any point, basically. We don't see what's inside. So like, we don't know if it's alive or not. So if we were asked like, what is the state of the system? Um, in order to give the full picture, we would have to write down a wave function, a description that involves both the cat being alive and the cat being dead because the particle could have been emitted and also could not have been emitted. Um, and so like colloquially speaking, yeah, the cat is like both dead or alive. Um, but once you actually open the box, you see whether the cat is dead or alive. So it's kind of like decided. So um, the uncertainty collapses into something that we know for sure. And according to the mini worlds interpretation, upon opening the box, the world sort of like splits into two uh, branches. So one of the branches is the one with the cat being alive and the other one is with the cat being dead. If you observe the cat as being alive, it just so happens that you are on the branch that has the cat being alive. But there is another you perhaps that detects the cat as being dead. And that's the other branch that you don't have access to. Um, and I mean, like this raises so, so many questions and probably for you as well, because like, oh, like, so there's two copies of you. Are you both conscious? Like mm. if you're like exactly the same, then why do you not like have some sort of mind communication with yourself in the other branch? Like what's happening? <laughs> so yeah, so it's very confusing. And also there's no like experimental proof um, or even it's not even, I don't think. Um, at the moment falsifiable like we can't prove it either way because if you're if the other branch is not accessible how could you ever test that it actually exists that's Um, so interesting yeah (laughs) it's interesting you mentioned that thing about the system so in this case we would be outside of the system right and and trying to understand what's happening within it before this episode i remember you asked the question of whether or not we can study something from inside it so from inside the system and i guess that's kind of like what we do as humans and as neuroscientists you know we have a brain and we're trying to study like our own brain as well as physicists who are trying to study the universe whilst being within it. So what is your opinion on that? And like the limitations of having, of trying to study the system from within the center of it? Uh, yeah. Are we the center of it? <laughs> such a human thing to say. <laughs> okay, fine. But, yeah. But, still, yeah. <laughs> but I think even being part of the system still kind of, makes you interfere with it um Mm. and it somehow changes the results you get but like if you weren't there who would even be observing the results it's like yeah it's i think to me it's clear that like the fact that you're existing within the system has to somehow factor into the theories that we write down to describe the world i don't know i think there's also a lot of bias and like our own interpretation of the data may mean that the system is actually different to what we believe it is. Yeah, I think um, there's definitely some bias just due to human senses. And I think we're doing our best to kind of create experimental setups that are, that kind of exclude human interference as much as possible. But I think it's just always there. Like in quantum mechanics, there's always that measurement problem. Like it's, the the process of measuring something is like actually not very well understood at all like what exactly happens to the system as soon as you measure it and yeah with relation to an example of that i think just in general even the thing that i was talking about before like when the wave function collapses that's Mm -hmm. sort of like 
at the point of measurement, it collapses. So like it goes into a decisive state. Um, But how exactly it overcomes that jump is unclear. And so that's kind of the measurement problem. Mm -hmm. Um, Because to measure something, you have to like look at it or I don't know, touch it or measure it with some apparatus. But like, I guess you have to interpret it. You have to look at it uh, for it to be looked at. I don't know. yeah and even like with the entire universe even when we study like some subset of the universe the rest of the universe is still there and like it still interacts with the subset that you're studying so i guess it's always like you have to make sure that um the fact that there's an outside universe outside of this small system that you're studying that it's sort of self-contained that like it's it makes sense to like ignore the fact that the rest of the universe kind of exists around it but that's not always a good idea because like for example if you had some I don't know uh, a cube of ice in some really hot water and you were just like focusing on the ice and it was melting and that would be a system that's like gaining energy from the outside gaining some heat you would need to take into account the fact that it's like in some bowl of water or something Mm -hmm. Um, but if you're just ignoring that um, it doesn't give you the full description and whenever you're studying subsystem, you have to make sure that whatever you're like excluding from the picture is not that important to your description, because otherwise, then you won't be cap- capturing the essential features. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with the brain as well, I think a lot of the time we take for granted that whatever our brain tells us is true, when in fact <laughs> most of the time it's not. It's very very easy to fool um, humans. I think we don't give our brain enough credit <laughs> about like how powerful of a deceiver it can be. And I, I remember reading about some sorts of experiments that were done where like a person was put in a certain brain state um, and they were kind of forced into feeling like there's a ghost behind them or something like that. Like there, there was no ghost. They were in the lab. <laughs> um, and I think, yeah, there's like a lot of stuff that can happen to your brain that you're not necessarily aware of. I mean, there might be some natural, um, some natural processes that happen, like maybe yeah. some radiation or something that you don't see because we're only restricted to seeing the visible light. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you guys can probably <laughs> talk about that more since <laughs> you're more closely acquainted with neuroscience. Well, it just really reminded me of what we've mentioned in many other episodes of um, the conscious experience has been just described as a living hallucination mm. because essentially everything we experience is in a way a hallucination yeah because it's um, a combination of both what we're taking in physically from the world such as you described with color like the bouncing of the photons. Uh, photons and light and photon absorption and emission um, as well as the top-down processes and the integration of our memories and all of those processes shape everything that we take in yeah yeah what you mentioned about the scientific experiment yeah there are several studies about illusions and trying to assess like touch and and that kind of thing as well as phantom limb phantom limb syndrome, syndrome. Yeah. yeah which is where a person uh, that has an amputated limb still feels pain in that area so yeah it's just another example of the way that I don't know the, the brain is incredibly complex and it's 
it's also another thing you mentioned about trying to study a specific element of the system and ignoring the rest of the system. Like it doesn't quite work like that in neuroscience. I feel like we can be a bit guilty of trying to do that when we record like a single neuron or uh, and then generalizing it to the whole brain. Yeah. yeah. Well, I often question, uh, this is something else we discussed in the noise episode, and it's about how um, humans are pattern seekers, and we we look for patterns in everything. And I, and I always question, like, you know, even with the most generalizable theories or equations, what if they're really just made up? because their purpose ultimately is just to help us understand the world. It doesn't necessarily influence the world. Although, as I was saying that, I realized that it totally can, because we can create, we can make inventions that influence the world. Yeah. yeah. But I guess, you know, regardless of whether or not we understand it, and regardless of the way we write it down as an equation, like the lo- the physical laws will remain the same. Yeah, but what if they don't? What if their existence is only for at the purpose of human interpretation. Yeah, I think this plays a little bit into that thing of like, um, you know, does a tree make a sound when it falls if no one's there to hear it? Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about um, how fundamental our science actually is. Like um, the descriptions that we have, how fundamental are they and how closely do they actually describe the Mm. fundamental reality? Um, And it's that question of like, oh, is math invented or discovered? You know, um, perhaps it's just a language and maybe it's very good at telling us how the world behaves. But I, my guess would be it's probably not exactly the way the world is. Like it's a language It's like, I don't know, speaking Spanish or English to describe the same thing. Like you're still describing the same thing, but that thing is not exactly the Spanish or the English itself, like those are just the languages that are used to describe mm-hmm. it. Um, and perhaps it's something like that. Um, and I think since math forms the foundation of a lot of science um, and sort of helps it be grounded in objectivity, <laughs> um, I think uh, it's all gonna, like all the science that we do is bound to have some human imprint on it. Um, and because we have to visualize all of the, these things. And I don't doubt that there are things that we just cannot conceptually visualize. And perhaps there are things that we just cannot understand, which is super, super frustrating to me. Um, <laughs> um, but perhaps that's the case. Like maybe there's just certain, like for example, there's languages that don't have certain, don't have words for some concepts. Perhaps we just don't have words in our mathematical toolbox. Um, mm-hmm. to describe some things that currently lie outside of our understanding. Um, and I'm not quite sure how to expand our vocabulary. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, I think, one clue for the fact that this might actually be the case, that like there's some limitation to exploration um, by virtue of just us humans not really being able to imagine certain things conceptually is that there's a lot of new mathematical theories that actually stem from physics that like in physics you study something and then you kind of start seeing some patterns (laughs) or some certain behaviors that you think maybe there's some underlying reason for them and then this can lead to some mathematical theories and it's happened many many times um, especially like during the uh, creation of string theory or 
some other like more technical aspects of theoretical physics, there were new mathematical theories that arise from that. Um, and sort of like the tools come from the fact that you're needing to solve some problem. And it's like, um, I guess sometimes we can't assume that, oh, we've discovered all the tools we could ever need to describe the world. Like there mm -hmm. might be more. And maybe it's like, that's the way we'll discover them is by stumbling upon a problem and then seeing how exactly we can solve it and then developing tools to solve it. Yeah, but I, I think there's probably some things that we just cannot understand. Although I sincerely hope that's not the case, but I don't know, or maybe we can somehow expand to the abilities of our brain. I'm not sure. I don't know. Or maybe is it limited by our biological makeup? I'm not sure. Well, first I have to say, I okay. think that was so well said. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to respond to the fact that um, as you touched on what we know and what, what we know mathematically and in terms of physics is really based on what we need to know as well. And so maybe that's the limit, like we are the limits of ourselves. Like we're looking in the wrong areas, perhaps. Well, we're looking in the areas we want to. Yeah. Which then is not so limiting. <laughs> um, I also think related to to that, that reminds me a bit about machine learning and just inputting like huge amounts of data and then it churning out some analysis or conclusion of the data. And the, the way that we process data, the way that we analyze data ultimately then influences our interpretation and our perspective of the world you know a, an easy example with that is in neuroscience we can measure electrical activity of the neurons using either tetrodes or neuropixels and that gives us what is it thousands millions of responses of spikes and then there are these algorithms that have to sort these spikes and mm -hmm. these algorithms the algorithm is you choose is very arbitrary but of course the way that you filter out the noisy data is going to ultimately determine the conclusion that you derive so in this sense the way that we go about analyzing the data the raw data that we have from the natural world i think determines then our perspective of it yeah because we're ultimately looking for a pattern sorry to repeat myself <laughs> but de depending on what analytical method we use we can find different patterns sometimes mm -hmm. yeah in touch, touching what you said about whether or not um, we can perhaps expand the mental capacities or whether we're restricted in our biology, um, this ties into one of my favorite topics, um, which is enzyme-directed evolution. <laughs> I, I feel like I bring this up in almost every episode, but this is relevant. So enzyme-directed evolution is where you um, basically modify an enzyme through s several series of like evolution and basically direct it to do the thing you want it to do and in this way there have been experiments where carbon has been able to bind to boron and silicon which has mm -hmm. which used to be unheard of and now they're thinking that potentially we can expand the genetic code by introducing these non-organic elements and um, by expanding this genetic code, we can expand perhaps our biological capabilities <gasps> to what you were saying. Oh Ooh. my gosh, this actually uh, um, reminds me of something. So related back to what you were saying earlier about okay. <laughs> AI yeah. um, and machine learning, potentially expanding maybe what we can find out from the data we collect, from the mm. experiments we do, and then enzyme-directed evolution also reminded me of just evolution in general mm -hmm. about how the process of evolution is to create 
or to utilize variation and variability mm -hmm. and then find the best solution from that. And from what I read about machine learning and the way that that is being evolved, mm. um, it's through expanding how many different types of patterns the machine can find in the data. And this makes it better, more capable of solving problems more, more so than humans and more reliable. And so that I feel like the basis for this all is to, to expand our horizons of what we can know. That's interesting. Yeah, machine learning is like something I think pretty mysterious even to the people who study it <laughs> because nobody really knows how it works exactly and why it's just so good at being so effective. You mentioned expanding, potentially expanding the mathematical toolbox. Do you know how you could ever go about that? Like, do you have any ideas? I I have no um, idea. I'm very much out of my depth <laughs> of comfort. No, I mean, I think uh, it's hard to say exactly how it's going to be done next. But I know that, for instance, there were some physical theories that needed some some descriptions in terms of for instance, like um, certain geometric shapes in math. Um, and there wasn't much known about those geometric shapes um, because they were like in multiple dimensions, um, the, more than three. <laughs> so uh, people really can't visualize that. So it's literally just, you just have to bash it with math mm. um, and maybe uh, use some intuitions about like three dimensional space. But I think because like there was something needed in physics, um, then sort of, mathematicians were were led to study those objects that might be useful and through studying them and kind of like investigating their properties and maybe like using some intuition they found um some theorems i guess it, like math is built on mostly theorems and proofs and that's what makes it so rigorous and rigid i think a lot of math um can be built up from some unexpected hypotheses and then People spend years and years trying to prove or disprove them. Um, and then if they, they're proven, then we can use them to build some, some new stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's kind of like a long process, but still at the end, at least you obtain something that's uh, definitely true. As long as it's like, I guess, on the foundation, it's like the mathematical axioms. And then you keep building and you know that each of the levels is true because you've proved it. <laughs> so that's very comforting to me but <laughs> yeah um going back to our conversation on systems i found this interesting paper that wanted to compare the morphology of neurons with the morphology or the structure of space so this is about uh, it's called the quantitative comparison between the neuronal network and the cosmic web and it's actually some really interesting comparisons. I just want to show you some images, which we'll put later on our website so everyone can take a look. Interesting. Can you spot the differences? Aren't these really similar? For sure, they are, yeah. So what we're looking at right now is some images of um, either the cerebellum or the cortex, as well as cosmic web, which but, is... But what is the cosmic web? Well, they call it dark matter i believe yeah. i think it's most likely like the cosmic matter um that's uh how it's like distributed in empty space right well empty space 
yeah of the universe they quantify the similarities so yeah they do they they compare basically so the brain is composed by water and it contains around 70% of water 10% of lipids 8% of proteins 1% of carbohydrates etc cetera, etc cetera. and in comparison the universe is apparently made up of 73% dark energy 22% of dark matter 4.4% of ordinary baryonic matter etc cetera, etc cetera. so the ratio between um these substances are similar and as well as so in terms of quantifying like how much memory the brain can process versus how much like also like information let's say the universe can process these are i'm really not an expert i'm just using these terms but i'm just copying the terms they used in the paper and basically so the way they looked at it in terms of the neuronal network is they were looking at like dendrites and the number of nodes in the neural network and how that yields 2 times 10 to the 16 bits which is around 2.5 petabytes in terms of memory capacity whereas for the cosmic web it says that it's around they use statistical complexity and that it's around 3.5 times 10 to the 16 which is around 4.3 petabytes of memory which is also really similar in terms of like quote unquote memory storage or information storage and mm-hmm. so i just think it's a really cool comparison and if we do look at neurons sometimes they do kind of look like stars right like some of the morphology of the neurons where the way that they spread out and stuff and so i just think it's a really cool or comparison glia. or glia the exactly the in the brain yeah um, that's cool yeah yeah i mean i think maybe it could be because certain um shapes certain arrangements are more favorable um energetically speaking mm-hmm. or like just according to some laws of physics um perhaps maybe it's like in the same way that like i don't know a rope when it's just like hanging um hangs in a specified shape that you can compute what that shape is and it's like kind of looks like a um parabola but it's actually not it's called a catenoid i think um yeah maybe there's just some physical reason why a certain shape or a certain arrangement is favorable probably talk about structure function relations maybe if it needs to serve a similar or comparable function mm-hmm. then it tends towards a oh, similar yeah. structure potentially <laughs> it's like it's really hard to like go from something really specific to something really general and i think we always yeah. have to be really careful yeah uh, with like from studying our examples that we know so well you know like we think we understand um and then move on to generalizing those conclusions to mm-hmm. the entire world it's yeah very dangerous to feel overly confident mm-hmm. <laughs> um so on that note uh, i think we're going to finish today's episode and thank you so much for joining us lisa thank, thank you, you for so having much. me it was it super was really fun such a pleasure talking to you yeah <laughs>